to 1 John, this is the scripture, 1 John chapter 1. Now, if you're not real familiar around your Bible, that is perfectly okay. A lot of people aren't. I did hear some news today, though, that some people are reading the Bible through for the very first time. And we've got one or two people who have just completed their reading and they've gone from cover to cover. And now I hope you'll just go through it again and keep reading because the more you get into it, the more it gets into you and the more it becomes a fiber, a part of the fiber of your life. But 1 John is not the Gospel of John and the start of the New Testament. The best way to find 1 John, if you don't know, is go to the back of your Bible and then just thumb through about, I would say, 35 to 40 pages. You'll go all through the book of Revelation. There's a wee tiny letter called Jude, and then you'll come into the epistles of John. There's 3 John, 2 John, 1 John, okay? So it's real near the back of your Bible. And I just thought, I'm not, uh, I don't want to insult your intelligence. I'm like, I have got a, I've got a table of contacts. I can find it on my own. No problem. I just wanted to help you there so that you'll get familiar moving around in the Scripture. Um, <clears throat> first of all, I have some really bad news to share today. But then I have some really, really, really good news for you today. And we're going to look at both issues. We're going to entitle it, Bad News, Good News. One of the leaders in children's ministry uh, had just concluded the day's teaching and wanted to make sure that she had made a point. And the point that she was making was pretty, uh, pretty straightforward. But, you know, when you're teaching little ones, even when you're preaching or teaching adults, you, you wonder sometimes, is any of this getting through? People are nodding their heads, but for the most part, that's just to make you believe they're in agreement, or nodding also means other things. So... Um, she was getting done, and she thought, I've made my point. I'm just going to ask one question. So she said, now listen up, I have a question for you. She said, can anybody tell me what you must do before you can obtain forgiveness of sin? And there was a short interval of silence, and then from the back of the room, a, 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 a one little boy spoke up, and he said, anybody know? Anybody know what he said? What must you do before you obtain forgiveness of sin? And if you get this, you'll get my entire message this morning. And I guarantee it'll stay with you. So what must you do, she said, before you obtain forgiveness of sin? And from the back of the room came the voice of this little boy who said, Sin! Profundity is wrapped in simplicity. See, over the centuries, a lot has been preached. A lot has been taught. Much has been written about the problem, or the bad news, as we call it, with sin. But did you know there's also some very good news about sin? See, the good news, the very bad news, best news of all is that we can be forgiven. Bad news, good news. 
So I want to look at what John, the apostle, wrote. He wrote about this one thing which is so common to all human beings, no exceptions, namely the problem of sin. And the first thing I want to to look at is that first off we have an example to follow in life. Uh, I'd be desperate and you'd be more so this morning if I couldn't make that statement and know that it's founded in truth. We have an example to follow. So I want to open the reading this morning in 1 John chapter 1. And I'm going to ask you to come down to verse 5. And we're going to read 5, 6, and 7 to kind of set the foundation. This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light. Keep that in your mind. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us or cleanses us from all sin. But if we, verse 7, but if we walk in the light. So John begins by saying, this is the message we've heard from him. And this is the message that we're declaring to you, that God is light. Let's say those three words together. God is light. There's some uh, pivotal words and phrases in these uh, scriptures that I'm going to share with you this morning. And if nothing else, I want, you to, I want those to get embedded in your mind and in your heart because they're so, so important to the understanding of this topic. Now, that concept of God being light, easy to say that. It's easy to say, oh, God is light. But could you explain that? Where does that come from? Well, let me suggest to you that it comes from the Old Testament originally. When God revealed himself in the Old Testament, frequently it was in the form of fire, and fire creates what? Light. In Exodus 3, God revealed himself to Moses in the form of fire, where? In the burning bush. In Exodus chapter 13, God presented himself as seen as fire guiding the Israelites through the desert. Fire brings light. And similarly, God is described as light. In Psalm 104, verse 2, the psalmist said, speaking of God, who covers yourself with light as with a garment, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain or a tent. And you know, a lot of artists have tried to capture what God might look like or what it would be like in the presence of heaven and, or what the coming of Jesus might look like. And it's always... It's, it's always encaptured, in, in, in it's always encased in, in, in with light. There's always a lot of light showing through. And people get this idea that light relates to God. And, and for a good reason. And, and this is where it comes from. In verse 4, continues saying, And in him there is no darkness at all. And here John contrasts the light with the darkness. Now I like, I like this contrast. The light expresses everything that's good, and the darkness expresses everything which is wrong or which is evil. And, and I don't think we have to really stretch our imaginations, any of us, 
to think about that because you've probably all, always been taught that. That good is, light is good or good is light and evil or sin or wrong is always dark. If the light expresses who God is, then the darkness has to represent something or someone too, and it does, and that's Satan and satanic activity and all that is evil. In God there is not even a hint of darkness, but he is completely light. Then John says, uh, in verse uh, 6, he says, If we say we have fellowship with him, and then we walk in darkness, we lie, and we don't practice the truth. So, Bob, say, does that mean that if we stumble and fall into sin, we are in darkness? And I'm going to reserve the answer for that for a moment because I want to hold your attention. And I want to follow the train of thought here. So right here, we understand and we must that what John means by that term, walk in light. What John is talking about here is a way of life, a manner of living. One commentator translates the verb and he says, quote, living habitually in darkness and says it implies a determination to choose sin or darkness rather than God, light, as one's constant sphere of existence, end of quote. He is not talking about occasionally falling into sin. Who among us occasionally falls into sin? He's talking about a continual practicing of sin or letting that become a life model. If it were merely falling into sin, we'd all be in darkness because we all sin. If he, if, he meant, if he meant that we were living in darkness, we'd all be living in darkness because we all sin. Now, I've got your attention. Let me add this to that sentence. Because this letter is written to Christians. Matter of fact, a verse we're going to come to in a few moments the ninth verse of this chapter is my life verse. It has been for 40-some years. And I call it the Christian's bar of soap, and I'll tell you why in a little bit. He says that we can't practice or we can't live continually in sin and go about saying that we have fellowship with God. John was confronting Christian people and he said they were walking with God and they had been making those claims. Well, we walk with God. And yet, I believe they were living like the devil was their example and not the Lord Jesus and they were living like the devil and calling themselves Christians. Be careful here. Look what he says in verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he, Jesus, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses or purifies us from all sin. All sin. Just as in verse 6, this is a habitual 
consistent response that should be characteristic of those who know God. Truly know God. But then you ask, but then how do we walk in the light? John, you've told us what we are to do and not to do, but how do we walk in the light? By following him who is in the light, by following him who is the light, and that's Jesus. If we live like Jesus, if we walk like Jesus, if we act like Jesus, if we react like Jesus, we will walk in the light. If we trust what Jesus did for us on the cross, and if we live our lives to please him, his blood will cleanse us from every sin. All sin. Thank you, Lord. I usually qualify that because I'm afraid people don't understand what every or all means. It means past, present, and future. It's already been paid for. Signed, sealed, and delivered. Stamped in the blood of Christ. Say, well, how would, uh, 2,000 years ago, how did Jesus know uh, uh, and how could it be past, present, and, and future? He died for you 2,000 years ago. The plan was contrived long before that, before you were drawing breath. So he knew every step you'd take, every breath you'd breathe, and every move that you would make in life. So let me illustrate what I mean by a way of life. There's an old, old story. Story of a man who was walking at night through a dark area, and he saw another man searching for something near a lamppost. So approaching, he asked the man what he was looking for, and the man, without even looking up to see who it was, said, I'm looking for my watch. So the first man is kind of wondering about this, and he said, well, where precisely were you standing when you dropped it? Continuing his search, not looking up to see this man, the man just pointed a finger over in the distance. He said, over there somewhere, now pretty puzzled. The first man said, well then, sir, why are you looking for it here? Finally looking up in frustration, meeting the man, the other man's gaze, the searcher replied testily, because, sir, the light is better here. Friends, it is inevitable. It is totally inevitable. We will all fall into sin from time to time. I know you're feeling relieved, aren't you? You're not alone. And I'm going to let that digest for just a moment while the uh, halos readjust. See some gulping, see some staring, some of it's glaring. Been doing it 40 years, that doesn't bother me. I love truth, it just does its job, it just settles in, and you just have to deal with it. It is inevitable. We will all fall into sin from time to time. However, 
we have an example to follow. And the example is Jesus Christ. He showed us how to live. He showed us, he showed us how to walk in the light. He showed us how to live. He showed us how to forgive. I personally believe the biggest lesson that the modern day church has yet to learn. We're long on criticism. We're very short on forgiveness. Church, church, Christians. And he taught us what grace really is and how it operates. Now, can I just, can I just make this statement? We are not always going to be able to do life perfectly. Some of you are coming along quite nicely. But you're not there yet. And the rest of us are waiting. We'll, we'll wait till you catch up. Sometimes people get this idea that, well, a person's been in ministry as long, four decades, and been preaching and know everything about the Bible, and we can't stump you. And so you must be right there, or you're off close to it. How I wish that were true. <laughs> Some preachers really believe that about themselves. <laughs> A lot of Christians do too. Just think that they've reached perfection. We're not always going to be able to live life perfectly. You aren't. I'm not. No one is. We will all eventually make those mistakes. We'll mess up. And if you don't do it, in one area, then you'll find yourself doing it in another area. Yes? Yes? Yes. I know, it's tough stuff. We can, we can take it. We're good people. The key is consistency. Following Christ. We can't live in sin... And Christian, this is so important to remember, you, you can't stay in sin because you belong to Christ and He is the light. So you can't be comfortable. The most uncomfortable and miserable people on this globe are people who know Christ and are living the exact opposite life because they know the difference. They understand the light-darkness thing. And they keep dabbling in the darkness when they know they shouldn't even be in the darkness because they are in the light. We must walk consistent. See how consistency is so important? We must make following Jesus a way of life. I know some people get saved and all of a sudden they want to do everything they can do. They want to be everywhere they can be. They want to tell everybody they can tell. I remember the first sermon I ever preached uh, I thought the whole world would get saved that day. And, and no, I honestly thought that, it, that, that when I finally got to that point and I invited people to Christ, that the church would just empty. I mean, it would just, 
Wow. And there's so much zeal and there's so much energy and there's so much power and there's so much cleansing and there's so much change and there's so much transformation and that person just says, give me more, give me more. And they're taking it in like a sponge. And I never want to discourage that because I want people to make that new life their way of life. And I want them to learn as soon as they can consistency with that life. Bad news, good news. First, first, we have an example to follow. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad there's only one example to follow, and that's Jesus? Oh, oh. And secondly, let me say that we have an escape when we fall. And I'm going to pick up the reading at verse 8, if I could. Feel free to to read along with me. If we claim to be without sin, the reason I encourage you to read is that so many many, uh, personal pronouns, uh, plural here, we, we, we. So I'm thinking maybe if we all read it, we'll all get that message. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Just think about that. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and will purify us from all unrighteousness. And if we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar And his word is not in us. If we confess our sins. In verse 8, John says, if we say we have no sin, we just deceive ourselves. The truth isn't in us. We're not even operating in that realm. And again, remember, he's dealing with false teachers. And he's also dealing with Christians who are thinking like, okay, I've accepted Christ and what he has offered And now I'm going to live the way I want to live, and I'm not going to consider that example. These are people who said they didn't need forgiveness because they hadn't sinned. They were basically saying, if you haven't sinned, you're what? They're perfect. And therefore, if I'm perfect, I don't need to be forgiven. I don't need this stuff, forgiveness. But what these people were saying is completely contrary to the truth of Scripture. In Isaiah 53, in verse 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And that's the great passion passage of the Scriptures, Isaiah 53. I encourage you, if you're a note-taker, get that down and read that chapter, 52 and 53. John says that those who believe this way only deceive themselves. He also explained that those who believe the possibility of human sinlessness, and there are a group of Christians, there is a group of Christians in the world today who believe that in this life, after we've accepted Christ and been baptized and gone through the motions, that we can literally arrive at a point of what's called sinless perfection in the body. I'm happy for those people. I haven't met one yet, but... They are fooling themselves, and they're refusing to accept the truth as it's expressed in God's Word. See, the truth of the Word doesn't change. People are sinful. 
I kind of wish, I kind of wish that the whole Bible was just the first two chapters and the last two chapters. Be a great book. Because there's no sin in any of those four chapters. But after chapter 2 of Genesis, yep, we identify, don't we? See? See, see, the truth of God's Word is eternal. It never changes because it can't change. We are sinful. This isn't very popular. How do you expect to attract people saying things like that? Because people are starving for truth. That's why. And though Jesus condemns sin once for all, Christians still sin. Although Jesus condemned sin and human activity like that was not pleasing to God, and he just condemned that once and for all, and he just said, you need to start over, and you need to have a new life, and you need to be born again, and you need to have the Spirit of God living in you, and you need to adhere to the teachings of Christ, and you need to follow Him, and you need to be consistent, and you need to go uh, not only follow an example, but set an example for others, on and on and on. You could uh, all these accolades, but you know what? Christians still sin. Say, yeah, I, I, I thought a lot of those people, and... Boy, that guy, yeah, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, I heard. Well, yeah, you can believe it. I've got people that I deal with all the time. And they get into a place where they're they're really feeling spiritually secure. And they're feeling like, okay, I've taken another step. I've jumped up another level. I'm doing okay. I'm riding real good here. I'm getting close to the top of the mountain. I'm definitely on the mountain. Can I just give you a word of warning? I hate to be doomsday boy, but you know what? Once you start claiming the victory, Satan's going to get active. He's going to attack you in ways you never dreamed of. And his whole idea is not to destroy you or take you to hell. His whole idea is to make you ineffective and to make you a mockery to your friends and your family and anyone else. And they'll be so disappointed that they'll just take their hands off you altogether. And when that happens, Satan will claim the victory. I used to say this years ago. I guess I've hardened to it now. But after a really power-packed, spirit-filled day in church on Sunday... I'd always go home and say, I don't even want to think about tomorrow because all hell is going to break loose. I know it. And I've got to tell you this, <laughs> very few times was I disappointed. <laughs> he does not want Christians living in victory. He does not want you claiming victory in the blood of Christ that you can overcome anything and everything. And obstacles are not obstacles. They are opportunities for the Christian. And we don't walk in darkness because we are in the light. You see these people who thought, well, we don't need forgiveness because we don't sin. They don't fool God. 
They don't fool people around them. You don't, if you're in that category, you don't fool people that are around you or know you. The only one you fool is yourself. So then John takes us a step further. I know you're enjoying it so much, I wouldn't want to leave you there. And in verse 10, he says, if we say we have not sinned, you were reading it with me, you know what it says, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now this goes beyond him telling us that we tell lies, or that we're merely fooling ourselves. This is a pretty, pretty stiff claim. That if we say we have not sinned, listen carefully, this is what the Bible says, we're calling God a liar. That's pretty serious stuff. Agreed? Mm. See, God has said all have sinned. And by the way, let me just add that sin came into this world through a lie, through deception. And the serpent said to Eve, well, you mean you can have everything in the garden except, like that's, you can't have anything from this fruit, uh, uh, from this tree here? Why? Because God said not to. And then he, uh, then he added the most insidious, damaging, thought-provoking question ever uttered. It was a lie, but it was in the form of a question. And he said to Eve, well, did God really say that? And that planted a doubt, and the rest is history, and you and I know all about it. God says that all have sinned. Otherwise, he would not have needed to send his son to the sin-cursed world. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become through him the righteousness of God. I don't understand all that, but boy, I love it. Boy, I love it. To claim sinlessness treats the cross with contempt. And it treats Christ's suffering as worthless. Take a long look at the cross and think about that. And to do this, John said, shows that God's word doesn't have any place in a person's heart. That's the bad news. We've all sinned. And as long as we're in this flesh, we're going to struggle with sin. (laughs) Hate to bring that to you on such a beautiful morning, but there you go. Why? The spirit has been renewed, the soul has been saved, but the flesh is still with us. Even Paul said, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? It's dying. It's the only part of you, Christian, that can die, is your body. If you don't think it's dying, you've got to get a little closer to the mirror. Because we started dying the day we were born. And I know that doesn't sound very good either if you've got little children, but that's the truth. Huh? And as long as we're in the body, in the, the robe of flesh, we're going to struggle with sin. I didn't say we're going to fall into sin. I didn't say it's going to become a habit. I didn't say it's going to become our way of life. I'm just saying it's going to be all around us. It's going to be in front of us, behind us, under us, wherever. And we're going to be tempted. 
However, 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 the good news is this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Faithful and just. Oh, those are titles that he has. Jesus is the faithful one. Jesus is the just one. There's no justice in this world. Lots of law, but there's no justice in this world. He alone is justice. And he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. One great commentator has noted, although the statement lies in a conditional clause, it has the force of a command or an obligation. We ought to confess our sins. We ought to. We ought to. And if we do... He's faithful and just to confess our sins. Bob, what's that mean? It means to agree with God that a certain act or a certain thought was was wrong. And to acknowledge this before him and to seek his forgiveness and to make a commitment not to let it happen again. Man, we complicate this thing. Well, I've, I've confessed it, and I've talked to God, and I've asked forgiveness the Bible, but I still don't know, and I'm carrying around the burden. That's just because you chose to take it out of his hands again. Forgiven means forgiven. Forgiven means it's over. Confession of sin is necessary for maintaining that continual fellowship with God. Which in turn will enable people to have good fellowship. And you'll have fellowship with God. And you'll have fellowship with other people in the church community. And you'll have fellowship with other believers. And you'll have fellowship with other people outside of that circle. And it says, God is faithful. What does that mean? That means he's dependable. He keeps us, unlike us, he keeps his promises. If he said it, he does it. If he promised it, it's yours. Say, I don't know if I've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. Look at the cross. What more do you want him to do? You have to take it. You have to accept it. God promised forgiveness even in the Old Testament. I'm giving you a couple of verses to look up sometime. Jeremiah 31 and uh, 34. And also over in the book of Micah, the We call him the minor prophet. Man, Micah had so much. He had so much to our theology, to our Christian belief. Micah chapter 7. Don't get me off on that one. 19 and 20. And read that whole book of Micah. It's not very long. God wants to forgive his people. God wants fellowship. God wants you back. He wants to maintain that close fellowship with him that you were made for. That's what you were created for, to have fellowship with God. He never breaks that fellowship. We break it. And aren't you glad that even though we do the breaking, he does the forgiving? He says, I want that fellowship again. I want you back. And it can only happen when the way to him is clear of debris. And that can only happen through confession and a contrite spirit. Look, you must be willing to turn. Turn that evil, E-V-I-L, in your life, 180 degrees. And then it will be spelled L-I-V-E. 
Live. 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 I can just merely flip that and make it live. What a transformation. So we must own up to our own mistakes. We must own up to our own slip-ups, our missteps. We must own up to our own sin. Four preachers got together one day. They had a friendly little gathering and decided they would talk over issues and compare notes. And during the conversation, one of the preachers said, Now, you know, our people come to us all the time. They pour out their hearts and they confess certain sins and they identify certain needs. And So why don't we do the same just with one another? Because we don't just ever seem to have anybody that we can pour out to. Confession is good for the soul. So they all agreed, yeah, that would that, that probably would be okay. So the guy who came up with the idea said, I'll go first. And he confessed that he liked to sneak off at times from his church and go see movies. He didn't say what kind of movies, but let's just leave it there. The second guy confessed to liking to smoke cigars. He said, nobody in the church knows, and my family doesn't know, and when I get away, I just... And the third one said, well, I like to play cards, but I like it especially if, you know, there's a little bit of money on the table, and I like to gamble a little bit. Came to the fourth one, he clammed up completely. He would not confess. And the others pressed him. They said, look, we opened our hearts. Come on. We confessed our sins. What, what's your vice? <laughs> what's your secret thing? No, sir. No, sir. Come on, come on. Finally, he said, okay. Okay, my sin is gossiping, and I can hardly wait to get out of here. (laughs) I know this is going to come as an absolute four tires all blown out shock. There is nothing wrong with admitting you've made a mistake. Because we all make them. It'll no doubt, I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with saying you've sinned. There's nothing wrong with saying, I've come short of God's expectation of me. I've really messed up. You know, I've got years to make up for. No, you don't. No, you don't. I can show you in the Old Testament where that's what the Israelites thought when they had been far from God. And God said, I will restore unto you the years that the canker worm has eaten. In other words, you don't have to worry about what you've wasted. I'll more than make up for it in my grace. Hello? I know that's hard to get in here, but wow. Wow. There's nothing wrong with going to the Lord and saying, Lord, I blew it. I'm a mess. I've sinned. Now, I know this because I know most of you fairly well. It'll, it'll catch God off guard a little bit. You'll, you'll catch him by surprise if you tell him you sinned, some of you. I, I understand. 
Oh, to be where you are. But there is nothing wrong with doing this. The only thing wrong is if we don't do it. You know why I think people are not grasping forgiveness? <clears throat> because real forgiveness is God's forgiveness. And what they see is human forgiveness. And let me just tell you, God forgives differently than we do. And here's why. Here are the differences between divine forgiveness and human forgiveness. I've been making this list for years. God doesn't use the silent treatment. Hello, husbands and wives. No, really. God does not demand to know why. Well, why? Well, why did you? Well, why? God doesn't make up artificial requirements. This is the, these are the differences between the way God forgives and the way we forgive. God doesn't bury the hatchet and leave six inches of the handle sticking out. And that's convenient because whenever I want to go back there, I can go pull that out again. That's not forgiveness. See, God, uh, Corrie Tim Boom said, God casts our sins in the depths of the sea, and then he puts up a no fishing sign. God lets us move on with our lives. People, if you're struggling with forgiveness right now or forgiving someone, you've got to let that person move on. God never holds that dark scepter of our sin over us. Oh, it's right here, boy. You try that again. Boy, you ever go, you step out of line. God doesn't do that like we do with people. Okay, I'll forgive you on one condition. You're not going to forgive them because forgiveness is unconditional. And God never leads us to live in the past. <clears throat> you're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. However, I haven't forgotten about your past, and whenever it's convenient, I'll be bringing it up to you. Human forgiveness. God doesn't forgive that way. God's forgiveness is total. God's forgiveness is complete. God's forgiveness is final. Thank you, Lord. And God never carries a grudge. woo I know people who carry a grudge. It may only last half an hour, some a couple days, some a year. I know people have carried grudges 25, 30, 40, 50 years. Some have carried grudges a whole lifetime. They go to the grave with that grudge. Wow, wonderful life right there. Doesn't get better. See, God forgives in a different way than we do. And here's something else that's really important. God wants to forgive us. God wants to restore us. God wants to heal us. God can't restore us until we're willing to confess that we've sinned. And Christian, his word tells us that if we confess that sin, he's faithful and he's just and he'll forgive us. The bad news is we've all sinned. We've already pretty much established that. But the good news is God forgives. And here's another part of the good news, if you can stand one more. And that's the third part, is that we have an advocate before the Father. We're going to go into the second chapter of 1 John, if I may. And we're going to just look at the kind of the continuation of this whole thought in verses 1 and 2. And again, feel free. And I invite you to read with me 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My dear children, in one or two versions, 
It's translated, my little children. My dear children. I write this to you so that you what? So that you what? But if, <laughs> but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And who's the advocate? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And verse 2 says, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, here, listen to this, but also for the sins of the The world's very sharply divided today, February the 8th, 2015. Very sharply divided. It's divided between light and darkness. You don't have to cut it down into religions or sects or any of this kind of stuff, or nationalities or ethnicities. It's divided between dark and light right now. It looks like darkness is winning. It's looked like that many times in human history. We know. We read the end of the book. We know differently. But do you know what? Even the people on the dark side, Jesus died for. What a world this would be if everybody could come to that realization. He didn't just die to save me from my sin or our sin, it says, but for the sins of the whole world. That's a universal salvation right there. It's available. It's available. What a thought. And and so we have an advocate. Chapter 2, he says, My dear children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. I uh, I don't think he meant may not. I think it was will not sin. So that you will not sin means that you will try to stay free from sin by avoiding it, listen Christian, and by refusing it, and listen non-Christian, and but then confessing it when it does happen. You say, Bob, I don't know if I'm a Christian or a non-Christian. I think I'm an almost Christian. I think I'm nearly there. I think I'm starting to understand it. I think it's not about perfection. It's about following example, the example of Christ. You're getting it. You're getting it. Stay with it. Just put your faith into action here, and you're going to be there. See, John is in no way condoning sin in his letter, whether the first chapter or the second. He says, the whole purpose for my writing is that you won't sin. But I understand human nature just like you do. And I understand my bent just like your bent to evil. So that you will not sin means try to avoid it. Try to refuse it. Try to stay away from it. But if it hits you, confess it and get it dealt with. Christians will sin because they've not yet been made perfect. Christians will sin because they've not yet been made perfect. Say, I'm a Christian, I go to church, I believe all that stuff they teach. But, oh, oh, why do I do that? Because you're not perfect. I know that's an awful revelation, and it's a hard way to start a new year learning something like that. But let me just tell you, you're going to sin. Why? Because you're not yet perfect. Some of you I know really well, and you're that close. You're just almost there. You can see the capital P, but you're not there yet. I'm not either. John fully understood it. He didn't want his readers to take the inevitability again of sin as an excuse for sin. And then he says, and if... I I just love the 
the irony of Scripture sometimes. And if any of us sin, isn't that a little, that's not sarcasm, but isn't it interesting writing? Let me put it that way. And I, I look at that verse and say, and, and if, verse 1, and if any of us sin, if, if anybody does sin, I don't think, I mean, I think there's a lot of weight on that little word if, don't you, right there? <laughs> but if anybody sins, he says. I guess he couldn't figure out how else to say it, not be too offensive. But if anybody sins, mm-hmm. okay. We have an advocate. Oh. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus is our advocate before the Father. Say, what's an advocate? Well, the next couple of words, uh, as we open uh, verse 2, explains what an advocate is. He is the, here's what an advocate is, the what? Atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's what an advocate is. Someone who is called in to stand by the side of another. And when, you, when I give you that definition right here, what, do you, what comes to your mind? Anybody? Huh? Love? A lawyer. Lawyer and liar. Really close, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I think God intended it that way so that wouldn't, you could interchange the words. It wouldn't matter. But um, you think of law. You think of the legal system. Matter of fact, uh, the French for attorney, for a lawyer, is avocat, A-V-O-C-A-T. He's a, a lawyer representing you comes in. He's called in to do what? To stand by you on your behalf. And if you have a lawyer that's worth his salt or her salt, and they're there, and they've been called in, and they're standing by you, and they're doing whatever they're doing on your behalf, you usually don't need to speak a word because they make your case for you. So the word advocate is a legal term. It's sort of like lawyer, as someone has said, attorney, legal counsel, however you want to put it, and that person pleads our case for us. Now we go back to Hebrews chapter 9, and the writer of the he- to the Hebrews, oh man, Hebrews 9, 10, and 11. Woo. Thank you for those of you that are reading through the Bible. When you get to Hebrews, read some of those chapters twice. You want to understand all this. Hebrews chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. But Hebrews, cha- I'll read the whole book. Hebrews chapter 9, I know, I get excited about some of this, like Hebrews 9, 22, and 23, but in 24... The word says, for Christ has not entered, oh, we have, for Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, this was after the crucifixion, and now to appear for us in God's presence. He, by the way, he's already taken the sin offering and placed it before God the Father. That's why he wasn't crucified, dead, buried, and risen again all of a sudden. 
there were a few little tasks that had to be done in the interim. Say, oh, he was lying in that grave all that time. You can believe that if you want to. I believe he was in heaven at the court of justice, laying before Jesus his finished product. His sin offering. His sacrificial gift to God the Father. So that when the resurrection was verified and people saw that he would come back as he promised and that proved his, his uh, divinity, his deity, his power, his lordship, all that needed to be done was done. Had someone recently asked me, now that I'm a Christian, what do I need to do? I said, Christianity isn't D-O. Christianity is D-O-N-E. It's all done. All I have to do is take it. All I have to do is accept it. All I have to do is appropriate it to myself personally. That's what I need. Not only is he our advocate, but he is... Another verse of scripture I want to share with you. First John, I don't have this, I don't think, on the notes, but in First John, if you're a note taker, write this down. Chapter 4, so you just go, go ahead uh, uh, three chapters, in verse 10. First John 4, 10. And here's what it says. Or if you have your Bible open, you can just flip it probably a page. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. Now, I'm going to ask you a question, folks, and I'm not trying to trip you up, but aren't you glad that Jesus is our propitiation? Now, some of you didn't answer. Why was that? Did you even realize that you had someone who was your propitiation? How many propitiations have you had in the last month? And when do you expect to have your next propitiation? See, that's what we do with Scripture, isn't it? We get these big, long words. We say, uh, for our sins. I don't know what it says. I don't know, how to, I don't know how to pronounce it. I don't know where it came from. So I guess it must not be important. Important. 1 John 4.10. Not only is it important, I want you to notice the way love works. This is the de- definition of love, John says in 1 John 4.10. We didn't dream it up. No person who ever lived on this earth ever loved God first. Here's what John says. We love him because he first loved us. Isn't it easy to be loved and loving when you know first you're loved? You're part of the deal? Yeah. And isn't it great to know that you have propitiation for your sin? Well, propitiation simply means a sacrifice offered to placate someone who was angry. You ever had anybody angry at you? How many have? Okay, four people. Um, I'm mad at you right now because you won't answer me. How many... How many times have you thought, well, what can I do to placate this? What can I do to just settle this person down? What can I do to bring peace to that person? They seem so troubled, blah, 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 blah. They're so mad at me. They're so angry with me. Blah. In the religious setting, if I can use that word, it was an angry God. 
It was Jonathan Edwards who preached the most famous sermon of the, of the great, uh, great Awakening. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. I've read that sermon. It's unbelievable. By this interpretation, God is the object of Jesus' sacrifice. You know, God's displeasure with sin. The fact that God is not happy to see us hurting ourselves by sin. He needs to be placated. So making the sinner, that's you, that's me, acceptable because God's disposition has changed. And i got to say, it's so nice and so great to have someone to stand up for us. Here's what Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, once said. I love this. Quote, God will not be absent when his people are on trial. He will stand in court as their advocate. He's talking here spiritually. To plead on their behalf. Huh? Boy, that's a quote. That's a quote. Our goal is not to sin. But when we do, we have an advocate. We have a stand-in. We have somebody that's been there, paid it all. He'll handle it. We have one who stands before the, the Father, and he pleads the case for me. He pleads the case for you. And when we sin and confess that sin, Jesus stands before the Father, and he said, Here, see, see, Father, see, see my blood. This has forgiven them. My blood has paid the price. That's hard to get into my small brain here. Big head, small brain. I've got to tell you something. I've got to tell you something. Just a little bit I know about that nearly makes me want to jump out of my skin. 1 Peter 2.24, and I'll close. I know those are welcoming words to you. Who himself... Do we have this one up? I can't remember. Yeah. Oh, thank you. He himself bore our sins. Who did? Who did? Help me. Okay. In his body on the cross. Never forget the cross. And never forget it as a symbol of grace. So that we might die to sins. Ah! And live... For what? Righteousness. See the exchange? See the 180? See the evil? Now spelled backwards is what? Live. You remember that. By his wounds, you have been healed. We don't have to take the wounds. He's already taken them. We don't have to shed the blood. His blood, which is perfect, has already been shed. We don't have to come with some kind of ritual and say, God, would you accept this? And then if I do that, would you accept that? And then if I don't do that, would you? It's already been offered at the throne of God. Wow. There's forgiveness in the blood of Jesus. If you don't know anything else that I've said today or nothing, none of it's connecting, just go home and say that to yourself over and over about 50 times. There's forgiveness for me in the blood of Jesus Christ. There's forgiveness for me in the blood of Jesus Christ. There's forgiveness for me in the blood of Jesus Christ. Wow. Hallelujah! Let's give it up. Are you happy about that? Are you happy about that? The bad news is we all sin. 
However, the good news is, the thing I like about the bad news is, because there's bad news, there's some good news coming. It's all balanced, and it all comes out. So the bad news is we all sin. That's, I didn't tell you anything this morning you didn't already know. However, the good news is there is forgiveness in the blood of Jesus. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. I love that. I don't mean, I don't mean those are descriptive adjectives. I mean he is, to me, means that's the embodiment. His, that's a title of Jesus. Faithful and just. Here he comes. Who? Faithful and just. Wow. I just have one question left. That's all. There's one. Bad news? Good news. What will you do? What will you do with the good news? Let's pray together. Can we do that? Thank you so much. Father in heaven, we just want to praise you this morning that we have an advocate. We have a go-between. We have an attorney on our side. And he happens to be the one who's already paid the price. And he makes the case. And everything he does and everything he lays before you, Father, is acceptable in your sight. We thank you for that. Well, we thank you that we can continue here in worship. We can continue to praise you. We can lift you up. We can exalt and honor the name of Jesus. That's what we intend to do. That's why we're here. And Heavenly Father, if there even be one here today that's not accepted that good news, never really brought it into focus, never really accepted by faith and appropriated it personally and said, this message was for me. I pray today that that sweet soul, young or old, man or woman, no matter where they come from, will just simply say, it's my time, it's my turn, it's my day, and I'm putting my faith in Jesus Christ. And if that's you today, would you pray that prayer? Would you just pray, God, I'm accepting you today. I'm receiving you today as my Savior, my Lord. I want to be totally transformed. I don't want to just live in a shell. I want to have real life. I want to turn the evil into the word live and live for righteousness. Oh, we have an example. Oh, we have an escape. Oh, we have an advocate. But I'm most happy today to say that I have a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You just simply pray that simple prayer. Let me just tell you this. Based on his word, you will be accepted. It doesn't matter what kind of baggage you're carrying. It matters that you and all the baggage just come. And there's room on his bus for you. By God's grace, may someone, may someone in this room be moved by the Spirit of God to make that decision. And if you've made it, I pray you'll have the boldness to tell someone. I would love to hear about it even today. Tell me before you leave. Bob, I made that decision. I prayed for God to save me, and he saved me today. Oh, to God be the glory. Great things he is doing.
And we praise him and thank him. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.